After the symposium, I met with each faculty member to explore in more depth some of the comments and issues from the survey. To begin, Dr. Dixon reviewed with me our data related to the use of neoadjuvant systemic therapy to facilitate breast conservation. We had a period of time in the United Kingdom where people weren't using much neoadjuvant endocrine therapy, and people started to try it. And the more they tried it, they suddenly realized that I wasn't talking complete rubbish, that it does work, and it has. I think one of the ways it spread is by word of mouth. As people try it and it works, I think that's probably, with the general surgeons, they probably don't come into contact with enough people who've used it. What did surprise me, however, was in that 70-year-old woman, there were still about 13 15% who wanted to give a new adjuvant chemotherapy. Now, that surprised me as much as the fact that people didn't want to give a new adjuvant endocrine therapy. And, you know, there still is this belief amongst the community that chemotherapy is better. And I don't know that we really have the evidence how beneficial chemotherapy is in some of these older women. And thankfully, there are some trials now in older patients, and we're going to find out. And I think that's desperately important because that group is understudied and we really do not have enough information on which to base current treatments. There's been a lot more sensitivity to the question of to what extent is chemotherapy helpful in a patient with an ER-positive tumor. And, I mean, I don't know, do we know, have there been comparison studies of chemo versus hormone therapy neoadjuvantly in women with ER-positive tumors? The only one small study was the semiglassos study. Right. I think it's only 151 women randomized to good chemotherapy or an AI, either anastrozole or examestine, what they found is similar response rates to chemotherapy and hormone therapy, and actually almost significantly more women achieving breast-conserving surgery with endocrine therapy. The p-value is 0.054, very close to the 5% significance level. And in that small number of patients, that's a good bit of difference. And the reason is that the changes that happen within a cancer are different when you treat them with endocrine therapy and chemotherapy. And what happens with neoadjuvant endocrine therapy is you get a scar in the center of the cancer, and that scar contracts down, and it pulls the whole cancer inwards. So if you have a two-centimeter cancer to start with and a one-centimeter cancer at the end, you only need to excise that one-centimeter portion of tissue. The problem with chemotherapy, yes, you get a much higher complete response rate, but about 40% of patients have this diffuse appearance within the breast at the end of chemotherapy. It's like you've fired gunshot through the cancer, but you've got small islands over the same area that the cancer was initially. And so, yeah, neoadjuvant chemotherapy is very good when you get a complete pathology response, but sometimes it's disappointing because it appears the tumor's gone, you take it out, but actually it's occupying the same extent of disease as it did before you started the treatment. Now, another issue with neoadjuvant endocrine therapy is the duration, and you've published on the question of extending out the duration. Can you kind of review what you found there? Yeah, I mean, what we found is that if you look at the percentage of women who we managed to convert from mastectomy to breast-conserving surgery with three or four months treatment, we were getting about half of women converted either from locally advanced or needing a mastectomy to breast-conserving surgery. By extending it a bit longer, we managed to get over 70% of women who eventually could achieve breast-conserving surgery. And nowadays, 
I do it empirically. I, you know, I give the patient neoadjuvant endocrine therapy. I see them at six weeks and three months. If they're responding well at three months, then usually I'll just see them three months later and at that point assess what's going on because undoubtedly if they're responding well at three months, they'll respond even better by six months. The big trouble is that these cancers get so small but by the time they come to surgery, they're very difficult to feel. They soften incredibly. And so one thing to watch out for is if you're treating them for a long time, put a tumor marker in or make sure you know where that cancer is because when you come take it out at the end, it's technically quite difficult. Now, we've seen a shift in terms of endocrine therapy of postmenopausal women clearly towards aromatase inhibitors. What about the difference in the potency or activity against the tumor? You published a paper recently that showed that letrozole seemed to have a greater effect in terms of lowering serum estradiol than anastrozole. Do you think that's clinically significant? We did produce that paper, but we're also just about to publish another paper looking at whether we could differentiate between anastrozole and letrozole in terms of its effects on the tumor. What we did is we randomized patients to get 14 days letrozole or 14 days anastrozole. It was only a couple of hundred patients, but what we saw was that anastrozole and letrozole were both pretty much identical at reducing proliferation. Impressively, of the, uh, I think, 206 tumors, 200 within 14 days, there'd been a reduction in proliferation with these drugs. So they both are in tremendously potent and impressive drugs at switching off proliferation in these cancers. So, yes, there's a potency issue. Letrozole does reduce circulating estradiol to low levels. Interesting, it's not worse for your bones, letrozole. It doesn't have any more side effects, which makes me think, is it actually doing any more to the tumor? Because I would have thought if it was more biologically potent, it might be worse for your bones. It might actually have more side effects if it was reducing estradiol to a more biologically significant level. So we have to wait for the phase trial, I think. But my view is that there may not be a direct correlation between potency and effect. But I think it's certainly worth exploring, and the phase trial eventually will tell us. One of the questions I was most looking forward to, because I know there's so much controversy about it, is the question of timing of sentinel node biopsy yeah, in that. the patient who's going to have systemic therapy. And we saw a real disparity in what we saw in terms of the fact that it looks like, certainly in the surgical investigators, the majority, three-quarters, are doing it after systemic therapy but a lot more variation in what people are doing in terms of medical oncologists or general surgeons. Can you kind of review that whole issue and where you are on it? Yeah. The first thing I'd like to discuss is the fact that most people are getting 25 26% central node positivity. Now, that's not our rate of central node positivity. And the reason is, is all our patients get full preoperative assessment of the axilla with an ultrasound scan and an FNA or a core biopsy of any nodes you can see. If you do that, you will identify up to 50% of those with involved nodes before going to sentinel node biopsy. So our sentinel biopsy rate is much lower than 26%. It's about 10 to 15%. So the first thing I would say is in these patients who are having neoadjuvant therapy, assess their axilla preoperatively with ultrasound, final aspiration cytology or core biopsy, and you will identify 50% of the patients. But more importantly, you will identify those, the majority of those with multiple node positivity. 
So what we do in those is we know which patients are node positive right at the outset. We then follow them throughout treatment and we make a decision what we're going to do at the end. If we can still see the nodes at the end, then we'll clear the axilla. If we think they've had a tremendous response in the breast and we think there might be a possibility their nodes have converted, then we'll do a sentinel biopsy. But for me, you know, if you look at the NSABP data about the fact that you, know, you can convert node positive patients at diagnosis to node negative, it just makes me think that we might be over-treating some of these women if we're doing a sentinel biopsy at diagnosis and then clearing them all at the end of treatment. I think the sensible time to the sentinel biopsy, from my perspective, is at the end of the treatment. I guess the problem there is we don't really know what the natural history is in a situation where you have a node-positive tumor that converts to node-negative for chemo. I mean, do we really know the natural history of those patients? Yes and no. What we know is that if you look at the outlook of patients treated with neoadjuvant chemotherapy, their prognosis relates to the stage of the disease at diagnosis and to the stage of the disease at surgery. So both have value. So the lower stage you are at diagnosis, if you've got no tumour left at the end of surgery, then you do better than if you've got an inflammatory cancer at diagnosis and you have no disease left at surgery. So they both appear to be independent prognostic factors. So you need to know both. You need to know the stage of the disease at diagnosis and the stage at the end. But you know, just to come back to one point, you know, people worry about the fact that is it the same sentinel node? Does sentinel node work? There's a tremendous study I heard presented in a meeting in Cremona. And what they did is they injected radioactivity into the breast and they did CT scans on something like 250 patients before and after neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And they looked at the position of the nodes and whether the breast took up radioisotope. And the results were phenomenal. Their sentinel node CT scans at diagnosis and their sentinel node CT scans three months later after neoadjuvant chemotherapy were almost superimposable. So the reality is sentinel node biopsy works. You get the same sentinel node diagnosis as you get at the end of treatment. So for me, there is no reason not to be doing sentinel node biopsy at the end because what I really want to know is more than the sentinel biopsy diagnosis for the outlook and for the treatment of the axilla, I want to be sure that I'm not unnecessarily removing axillary lymph nodes on patients who actually don't need that procedure. Now, you talked about using ultrasound to identify these patients. To what extent do you think that's being done in the United States? It's patchy. I think it's coming in a lot of places. You know, I travel around quite a few centers in the U.S., and it's definitely now becoming more common to do that. And, and it's dead easy. Everybody has ultrasound machines. Everybody who has a breast lump has breast ultrasound dead easy to put it on the axilla having said that dead easy to put it on but actually it takes a bit of time to get used to looking for those nodes but when you, the radiologists are getting much better now and as soon as you can see anything putting a needle in is not that difficult in fact you know it's cheap straightforward has very few complications you've got nothing to lose even though it might miss 50 percent of nodes that doesn't matter because we'll get those on sentinel node but just detecting 50 percent of those involved nodes means that those women don't have to go through a sentinel biopsy and then an axillary dissection. Another issue that we asked about is this issue of the patient who has negative sentinel nodes interoperatively but then positive nodes post-op, and it looks like maybe 10 
of cases they say that happens. And most people, but not all, go back. Can you talk about what do you think about those numbers? There are a lot of different options for assessing sentinel nodes intraoperatively. And in this survey, we talk about the newer techniques, which I think are very interesting. RT-PCR. RT-PCR, very interesting, quite exciting. I still think there's a bit of work to do on that. What worries me about some of the newer techniques is that their sensitivity almost maybe too sensitive. Just a few isolated cells or a small deposit on the node, we wouldn't necessarily be doing an axillary dissection on that patient if that was an isolated nodal metastasis. It depends, of course, on many things. How many central nodes you've removed? Is that only one node involved? The size of the metastasis, the extent to which the node's involved. And there are quite a few algorithms now, but although nobody's managed to come up with something that you can hang your hat on every time. But certainly, you know, if we've got small deposits in one lymph node and we've got lots of other lymph nodes as well, we won't go back on that patient. The other things we do, which is not common in the US, sometimes we will give auxiliary radiotherapy to some of these lower risk patients. But I think, you know, still the standard of care is if you've got significant lymph node metastasis, then axillary dissection is still the standard of care. Although I suspect with time we may do less of that in some of these patients with low volume central node disease. One of the things that didn't come out in this study is, you know, the number of central nodes. And I think when you look at the NSABP studies, even in the neoadjuvant patients, they had a number of patients who had neoadjuvant therapy, their original central node was negative, but when they went back at surgery, their central node was positive. And I think that comes back to, you know, the issue of central node or nodes. You know, I think now most people realize that there isn't one central node. My impression from the fairly extensive experience of central node is that probably about two-thirds of women have two chains coming out of the breast. There's two lymphatic chains, one to a central node in the pectoral region, which is underneath the pectoralis major, one a little bit more lateral. And you can easily miss one of those nodes, medial or lateral, unless you look all the time. And my number of central, average number of central nodes is three. And if you look at, again, at the NSABP data, the time that they were wrong in their central node is when they only took one central node. And I really think... The number of patients who have only one central node is actually a minority. And surgeons have to make sure that when they're removing those central nodes, that they look for that other chain and they look for up to four central nodes, I think. My impression still is that a number of surgeons are still missing central nodes. What we do know is about 25% of patients with involved nodes, it's not the bluest or the hottest node that's involved. So if you've removed just the bluest or the hottest node, in 25% of the time, if there's another central node and that's involved, you will miss it. So I think that's one big lesson about central node. It seems a very straightforward, simple procedure. It's not always simple and straightforward. Now, another question about sentinel node that Pat Whitworth was particularly interested in, I guess there was a question of technesium maybe not going to be available. What would you do in that situation? It looks like almost everybody would just go ahead and just use the dye alone. Is that the way you approach it? Yes, it is. And in fact, you know, in the United Kingdom, a lot of people use blue dye alone and combine that with taking some of the lymph nodes around. And the other issue that wasn't asked here, of course, is Memorial Sloan Kettering. They 
call a central node a blue node, a hot node, or a palpable node. And I think that is really quite important because you do get some patients who have involved nodes where the node is blocked by tumour and it won't take up either blue or technetium. So, yeah, I think the blue dye alone is not an unreasonable option. What do you generally do? Both? I do both. What always surprised me is that most people have the technetium injected before operation and the blue dye at the time of operation. But actually, if you look at Sinti scans, you can see the radioactivity up in that first node within 90 seconds to two minutes. So do you need to inject the radioactivity before? The only reason you need to inject it if you're going to use regular Sinti scans. Otherwise, you can inject it at the same time as the blue dye, and that's what I do, and it works very effectively. So I think it's reasonable, if you haven't got technetium, to use blue dye. What surprised me a little bit is where people inject it. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. We saw a lot of heterogeneity there. Yeah, the science behind where to inject it is still not exactly clear. But the studies I've seen show that if you inject in the subaerial region, to inject technetium in the subaerial region and blue dye around the tumour, they show up in the same central nodes. I'm not convinced there's a logic anymore to injecting it in two places. And I'm also fairly convinced from a surgical point of view that injecting it peritumally is very messy when you're doing the surgery. You want to be able to see what's going on. You want to see the bleeding. And so when I first started, I injected it peritumally. I've converted now to subaerial, and I see that in there the clinical investigators 50% of them injected in that subaerial region. And I think once you've tried it, it's easy, it's straightforward. More people do it, particularly when you've got this issue of a lot of cancers are impalpable. How do you inject it? That means your radiologist has to inject it around the tumour. Much easier to inject in the subaerial region. I think the evidence is that it works quite well. Yes, there are the people who say, well, the deep aspect of the breast and the parenchyma drains differently to the subaerial region. I don't know if I'm convinced about those studies, and certainly we've done a fairly large study on subaerial injection, and we've shown highly effective, it misses very few central nodes, and very low false negative rate in our hands. The one thing, I was interested a lot, about 29% of the clinical investigators use methylene blue. There is a small but significant issue with hypersensitivity to isosulfan blue, and undoubtedly when those patients get it, it is a major issue. I've used methylene blue, and I've seen the studies on methylene blue. It's not quite as clear when you see it, but from a safety perspective, methylene blue does have something to recommend it, and I think If I saw more studies with methylene blue and people were able to show that it was as good as the isosulfan blue, from a safety perspective, I think it makes sense. You said that you see reactions to isosulfan or methylene blue? You see, again, the literature is a little bit confused about that. Some of the papers I've seen suggest that both of them have an issue of hypersensitivity, but other papers report that the hypersensitivity rate is much lower with methylene blue. I've used methylene blue and I've never seen a hypersensitivity reaction. We use patent blue V, which is like lymphosurin in the UK, and you do get probably just less than 1% of patients who hybrid. And when they get it, they get big blue wheels and 
the anaesthetist noticed that they can become wheezy and drop their blood pressure. And it is a concerning issue for the anaesthetist and they need steroids and some of them can be quite unwell with it. And so I'd like to see a little bit more work on that area so that we can be sure we're using the best dye for the patient. Let's talk a little bit about hormone therapy. Our studies suggest that there's not an insignificant fraction of, particularly the doctors seeing a lot of breast cancer, who just go ahead and write for it. What are your thoughts about that? I don't think that's unreasonable. What happens, I think, in many centers is when the pathology comes through, the team meet, they discuss the patients. If the patient is considered not requiring chemotherapy and they require endocrine therapy, then I think it's entirely reasonable for the surgical oncologist to prescribe that. Most of the surgical oncologists will have had experience of managing patients with tamoxifen aromatase limiters over many years. I think they can inform patients of the risks and benefits. I think they know about the side effects and issues, although we'll come back to that because I was surprised at how many surgeons thought a woman with normal bone density would become osteoporotic by taking five years of an aromatase inhibitor. So it looks as though the level of knowledge amongst surgeons might not be as good as perhaps as I would have hoped. But I think it's not unreasonable for surgeons to prescribe hormonal therapy as adjuvant. The oncologists are pretty busy with chemotherapy. Increasing numbers of women are being diagnosed. I think they're best concentrating their efforts on these women. That's certainly the view in our community. And I guess it's now starting to narrow down in terms of the number of issues you really have to deal with. It seems like the two major issues are bone and arthralgias. In terms of bone, the most recent update of the ATAC study was presented at the December San Antonio meeting, 100 months of follow-up, then it was published in The Lancet. And one of the things there was that by the end of the five years, there was no increase in fractures. What did you think about that? I thought it was very interesting that it looks as though the bone mobility is only restricted to the period of time when they take the drug. And then once you stop the drug, your risk of subsequent fractures is pretty similar to that of women who've taken five years of tamoxifen. You know, it's interesting because I interviewed John Forbes, who presented these data at San Antonio, and he brought up that idea, which we've been hearing a lot ever since, well, it's been a couple of years now that this, I think, has come out on the table And he actually brought up another thought that I hadn't really thought about, which was that maybe what happened was that once the study was presented initially in 2001 and people got more sensitive to the issue of bone, started to be more aggressive about using bone density measurements and bisphosphonates, that maybe that was the reason that people got more aware of it and prevented it. That's possibly the case. What is clear is that when you stop tamoxifen, you get major metabolic changes in your bone. It's like withdrawing HRT. So although we consider tamoxifen to be beneficial to your bone, it's only beneficial while you're taking it. And one of the things that we noticed when we were looking at bone markers in patients on aromatase limiters and on and off tamoxifen is there is a precipitous rise in bone turnover markers as soon as you stop tamoxifen. So although tamoxifen does prevent osteoporosis and improves bone density, it only does so while you're on it. Within five years of stopping, it will be exactly the same with HRT. Within five to ten years of stopping tamoxifen, you will have lost any benefits you've had 
as a result of taking the tamoxifen. I think that's probably something that people don't appreciate. Yeah, that's a good point because we are comparing it to taking tamoxifen. Yeah. That also leads into another issue, which is the benefits that are being seen now with extended follow-up. And one of the issues is that even with a 100-month follow-up, we still don't see a survival advantage to at least anastrozole versus tamoxifen. Again, John brought up the interesting point to me that should we always be looking at the bar of overall survival in adjuvant therapy? Does it make a difference when you're talking about chemo versus hormone therapy? He drew the analogy of diseases like or processes like osteoarthritis, where you know we don't do studies looking at mortality. We just treat the disease. What's your take on this issue of mortality? I think that overall mortality is not a good endpoint for many of the studies that we're currently running. Yes, it's clearly important to know if there are other issues related to the toxicity of the drugs. But all the drugs can do is influence events related to the cancer. So for me, I think we've kind of lost our way with some of the endpoints on these studies. For me, a much better endpoint would be metastatic breast cancer-free survival. Because what we know is if you get metastatic disease or if you can prevent metastatic disease, eventually you will get a long-term improvement in outcome. And that's what we should be doing because that's what these drugs are meant to do. If you look at the attack data and the stuff that we've done on neoadjuvant patients, 30-50% of people in this age group are dying of other causes. Now that's great because we've actually cured them. They've lived long enough to die of something else and that's very good news. But if you throw all that into the mix, it dilutes your ability to find out whether your drugs are really having a beneficial effect. And we almost saw that in the initial attack results. You know, The inclusion of all those ER-negative patients, all that noise in the system, almost destroyed our ability to detect that benefit of an astrozole in the overall analysis. Is a much more significant benefit in the ER-positive population because you wouldn't expect any benefit in the ER-negative group. So for me, I think we need to redefine our endpoints in some of these clinical trials. The reality is there are more and more women getting breast cancer, but more and more of them are older, and more and more of them are going to die of other diseases. And I think we need to involve patients in this because it's a devastating event for patients if they develop a recurrence. For me as a breast surgeon, I don't want my patients getting a second primary in their breast. I don't want them to get a contralateral breast cancer because then they have to come into hospital and they relive everything again. So if we have drugs which will stop that, then that's good for me. And I think that's good for the patients. And I think sometimes, yes, we get stuck on overall survival, but what patients like is quality length of life without recurrence. That is the best time in their life that they get from the breast cancer, from the time of diagnosis to that first recurrence. And if we can prolong that, then we prolong quality of life. But, I mean, you have to factor in toxicity, because if it takes a bone marrow transplant to do that, it's one thing. If it takes an AI, it's something else. That's true. And I think, you know, one of the things that I think we're reasonably good at is trying to identify those patients who have unacceptable toxicity. And we've done a lot of work on that. And we've been able to show that if you look at bone morbidity, if you get arthralgias on one drug you switch them to the other. So if you get arthralgia on letrozole, you switch them to anastrozole, 50% will get less arthralgias. And if they cope with either of those, if you switch them to tamoxifen, 80% of those who get significant arthralgias on anastrozole or letrozole won't get it on tamoxifen. So 
And that's where being a doctor comes in. You just don't prescribe drugs and send the patient away forever. And I think one of the lessons I learned from last San Antonio is between 25 and 33% of patients who are given endocrine therapy don't take their drugs. And that's because we aren't very good at monitoring their morbidity. Yes, these drugs are associated with significant morbidity, so we as doctors have to get better at controlling their symptoms, working with them to find a therapy which will work for them. What we've seen consistently is that you ask oncologists who use a lot of these drugs, how often do you have to do something, change drug, you know, do something, because of arthralgia, it's pretty common, maybe 25%. Yeah. But how often do you have to actually take them off therapy? Very uncommon. Is that your experience? You usually can find something they can you live can with? You can usually find something. I think part of the reason is I think the arthrologists eventually get a bit better with time. But there are definitely some women whose quality of life is so miserable they can't take them. And that's, you have a discussion with the patient, they stop them, because it does come down to choice and quality of life. And it's what we've talked about before is, you know, survival's one thing, but keeping people alive who aren't happy is another thing, you know. Any speculations? Have you heard anything? I haven't heard anything. I know it's been studied a lot more and more in terms of what's going on, why these people have arthralgias. No, I'm surprised there hasn't been more work, but I think part of the problem is going to be in the joints. I think oestrogen is essential for either synovial fluid or some of the synovium, and that once you withdraw it, then you get some change in the synovium. And I think it's kind of difficult to get information on that and to biopsy joints and find out what's going on. So I'm It doesn't so, seem to be inflammation, though, or does it? No, it doesn't, but I suspect it's just... I don't know whether it's just is less... The synovium is less active, and you don't have as much synovial fluid, and so it dries up, because a lot of people complain of creaky joints and slow getting moving in the morning so the simple answer is i don't know and it'd be good to know more about that another thing i want to ask you about is the so-called carryover effect and if i had to pick one slide that i saw at san antonio that was the most interesting it was what happened to relapses in the atac trial for years five through nine where you saw continued actually increase of the carryover effect you see with tamoxifen can you talk about that what you think the carryover effect is from and what do you think is going on well, we saw the carryover effect when you had five years tamoxifen versus placebo. And I think one of the things that was driving people on from attack is, you know, if you look at the time to getting a survival benefit, it was actually the survival benefit from tamoxifen versus placebo only became clear a good few years out. You know, for years we were saying still that there wasn't any benefit in premenopausal women, and now we know that's complete rubbish. So... I think some of the studies are still fairly early. So I think it was quite exciting that there's a carryover effect for anastrozole. And it shows that whatever you're doing with the endocrine therapies, they're having a long-lasting effect. How they do that, I think, you know, speculation really. But clearly what they do is that they either slow down or eradicate some metastases that either don't develop or are much slower to manifest clinically. Of course, there are trials looking at that. But what we're seeing in this survey and other surveys is more and more people in situations where the patient isn't eligible or is not going to go on a trial continuing AIs. Yeah, I was surprised about that because there's no evidence whatsoever. But we do know from ATLAS and ATOM that surprisingly, or perhaps not surprisingly, I think, to some of us, that prolonging tamoxifen does improve outcome. It's only a small percentage increase. But nonetheless, you know, prolonged endocrine therapy does seem to benefit. So I think we will find eventually that prolonged AIs 
are valuable. The other thing is that people who can cope with five years of AIs can cope with longer. So if you get to five years and you're coping without any side effects, really taking 10 is not that much more morbid other than for your bone. But by five years, bone's been monitored. The patients who are osteoporotic are on bisphosphonates. Then they're pretty educated people. They know about calcium and vitamin D. So once you get to five years, I don't think there are going to be major morbidities associated with much longer treatment. But it's interesting how many people are prepared to give it with no real evidence. I thought that was one of the more interesting aspects of the survey. You know, it's interesting because we've been seeing this now over the last two, three years. Because like maybe, say, three or four years ago when we asked that question, people said, no, I'm not going to keep the AI going. Now you've seen a huge shift without any real new research information. And one of the things that I hear a lot from docs, even though we don't have definitive evidence about it, is an increasing sensitivity to the risk of relapse in years 5 through 15. Now, whether you can affect that or not, I guess you can debate that. But I think that until these recent studies, the MA17 study, et cetera, I don't think there was the awareness of the quantitative risk in these years. I think the MA17 was a seminal study. I think a lot of people were thinking, if you got to five years, that was it. You were home and dry. But what the MA17 reminded us of is the more events after five years from 5 to 15 years than in the first five years in these ER-positive patients. And what we were able to see in that MA17 study is by prolonging endocrine therapy in those high-risk women, you actually improve their survival. I think the MA17 was a seminal study in that it re-educated us about something we'd forgotten, that in the ER-positive population, there are more events from 5 to 15 years than in the first five years. And I think now everybody's much more aware of that and they realize that the risk is almost lifelong. And one of the things that fascinates me, because I'm interested in follow-up, is if you look at the rate of contralateral breast cancer or the rate of second primaries in a treated breast, it continues at the same rate almost forever for the rest of the patient's life. And so you just wonder if at the end of the day, from endocrine therapy, if we're going to be looking at lifelong treatment for some of these women, because just to reduce the number of patients who get other new breast cancers. And I think this is one area where we saw an interesting divergence in the study in that when you look at general surgeons in practice, you see that a substantial number of surgeons in practice think that the patient's really only at risk for you know up to about five years. Almost half the surgeons respond to that. So I think maybe those numbers aren't you know, need to maybe get out a little bit more. That's right. I think it did demonstrate that the... Clinical investigators, I think probably because of their better knowledge of the MA17 results, were aware that there is risk over a prolonged period, whereas the general surgeons, about 41% thought that there was substantial risk of recurrence only in the first five years. Sadly, that's not true. These women are at increased risk. And again, that's an area where, with the general surgeons, there still needs to be a little bit of education. Yeah, really. I remember when the MA17 data, there was a press conference when they first presented, and I remember thinking, okay, well, yeah, I guess this is practically important. But I don't know, it just didn't really hit me that it was that big a deal. And then over the next couple of years, the more I thought about it, the more I heard people talking about it, I realized how critical that study was. I mean, it changed our whole view of breast cancer, I think. I think it did. And I'm exactly the same as you. I thought it was kind of interesting at first, but it's only as we got more follow-up data. And what impressed me is, you know, by the time you go to four to five years, you've reduced events by about 80%. So it's almost got better 
the longer you give it. And yeah, I think it has been one of these studies that has changed our thinking about breast cancer. The other thing is nowadays, you know, we're so much better with our local regional treatments, with our initial systemic therapy, that we're getting more patients out to 5, 10, 15 years. So it's becoming even more important now, having done so well initially in these women, to keep them alive and keep them disease-free. So I think we are going to be looking at probably lifelong treatment. What is interesting, however, is whether you need to give these drugs continuously. Mm. And there's some studies now which are starting to look at whether you can give them intermittently. And there's a European study up and running where they're giving AIs nine months of the year and then stopping for three months. I'm not sure that I would have chosen that. I think I would have perhaps chosen three months on, three months off. But nonetheless, it's an intriguing and interesting study. And I think we'll see a bunch of studies coming forward now where you might get intermittent endocrine treatment to try and limit morbidities and improve toxicities in the longer term. The other thing is the issue of sequencing, which I think has started to throw out a little bit in terms of, I think most people are pretty on board in terms of starting an AI up front as opposed to, quote, priming with tamoxifen, et cetera, et cetera. But there's still the big study out there, and one of the four arms of that study, of course, that looks at letrozole versus tamoxifen for five years, and then also looks at tamoxifen for a couple years followed by letrozole, and then letrozole followed by tamoxifen. And that's the one that interests me. In a way, kind of reminds me a little bit of what you just talked about with intermittent therapy. What do you think about that? I think that is quite interesting because, you know, you've got letrozole, which is in the short term will be bad for your bones and cause some arthralgias. And then you've got tamoxifen, which is coming along later, which will probably be better for your bones. I think it's an intriguing way around. And in the longer term, you wonder if you're, you know, we might be doing five years letrozole and five years tamoxifen. What we know from chemotherapy is switching the drugs is often better than continuing the same drug. So I wouldn't be surprised if perhaps in 10 years' time we are treating patients with sequences of drugs, but perhaps different sequences to the ones we've got just now. You mentioned the ATLAS trial that Richard Pito mm-hmm. presented in San Antonio, and I interviewed him at San Antonio about that. And of course, I guess it's a little bit of a preliminary analysis, but the bottom line, as you said, was that he stood up there and said, I think there are fewer relapses, maybe 15% in patients of VR positive tumors and people who continue tamoxifen beyond five years. Nowadays, I think that's mainly an issue for premenopausal patients. What do you think about that? Or is that ready for prime time? I think, as you say, it's really only an issue for premenopausal patients. MA17 showed us that letrozole and we had also the NSABP studies, and there's a small Austrian study, I think, looked at anastrozole. All these studies have shown that the eyes can do a lot better than 15%. So my view is it's kind of almost a non-question. In the postmenopausal? In the postmenopausal women, we should be switching to an AI, not continuing on tamoxifen. But in the premenopausal women, it's an intriguing question. So what we do is we keep them on tamoxifen while the premenopausal keep checking their hormones and when they get to postmenopausal eight nine ten years perhaps we'll then switch them to an ai at that point of course he didn't wasn't able to factor in that side effects toxicity yet i mean i think they're still looking at that so even if there are fewer relapses you kind of have to look at the whole therapeutic ratio 
But this issue of the woman who starts out premenopausal, maybe she gets chemotherapy at some point, maybe it's in a few months, maybe it's in, as you say, eight or nine years, becomes postmenopausal. Do you feel comfortable just looking at the sera and you know trying to determine if they're postmenopausal? Very difficult unless you've got very sensitive estrogen assays. But I think it is possible if a woman's had chemotherapy, she's had a tamoxifen, we're now thinking of extending the treatment. Certainly she's over 50, we will put her on an aromatase limiter and just monitor her very carefully. You know, if you educate patients what to look for, most of the women who are premenopausal, they will get some kind of menstruation or they'll identify some changes in the body. But what we tend to do is send some hormone analysis away about six weeks after they've switched. And if they are premenopausal, then letrozole or anastrozole will find that follicle, get it to start working, and they will produce estrogen, which you can measure. But it is a difficult area. And sometimes, you know, you put patients on an AI, they menstruate, put them back on tamoxifen, keep them another year and try again. It's just a see-as-you-go policy, I think. It's a difficult area, though. Anything else in the survey you want to comment on? Yeah. One issue that came out from this study, to me, was the fact that a lot of surgeons think oncologists are too keen to give chemotherapy. It was interesting. I went to a conference in Missouri a few years ago, and it was based entirely on are we over-treating patients? And you do feel that sometimes the pendulum has swung to the extent that chemotherapy is considered standard of care for almost anybody, and you've got to be in some special category not to get chemotherapy. And I really do believe that we need more studies to identify those who don't need chemotherapy. And I suppose that's where the... Taylor X study comes in and some of these other studies, they're trying to identify those patients in whom perhaps we can avoid chemotherapy. Yeah, I mean, you have the Oncotype DX, you have the print out there. I was interested because I was talking to Ian Smith about what goes on on the other side of the pond yeah. in terms of those tests. And he told me that they're not utilized very much. In the UK, none of these tests are utilized very much. Why is that? I think First and foremost, accessibility of the tests within the country. I would assume it's an economic issue. Yes and no. Most of the issues in our country are not economic. They're an issue of whether something's been tested to a sufficient standard that it can get a license. And so that's the major thing is we tend to be a little bit more... Regulatory? Regulatory. Yeah, it's a regulatory issue. Interesting. So uh, do you think that people believe in the science, the docs in practice? Yeah, I think a lot of people believe that eventually this will be the way to go. So I don't think there's any feeling that this is not the way to go. And I was intrigued by some of the comments about Mammoprint versus Oncotype DX and one's registered and one's not. I mean, the big problem for me with the Mammoprint is that you have to have fresh tissue, you have to do it beforehand, you can't do it retrospectively, so you've got to educate the surgeons to take the bits of tissue at the time of diagnosis. So, you know, I think mammoprint, unless you're thinking well ahead of time, it's too late by the time you've got the tumour out. And so I can see why most people use Oncotype DX and makes sense to me. That well, also, I haven't seen any data on mammoprint in terms of predictors of response to therapy. No. You know, does a patient benefit from chemo specifically, yeah. whereas you have those data in Oncotype? Yeah. yeah, I think there are more data in that group of women who might benefit or not benefit, or certainly that middle area, you know, and the area of certainty and uncertainty. I think that is true about Oncotype DX, and there isn't that amount of data with the mammoprint. I think the mammoprint's a very good test. It clearly does split people up into two separate groups, which I think is very valuable. 
But I think it's a way to go to catch up with oncotype DX just because it's fresh tissue. You need to think about it at the time you're doing your operation. Even the way you cut it, you have to slice into the tumour and do a biopsy within an hour of taking it out. Most surgeons aren't happy because the pathologists aren't happy of them slicing into the tumour and taking a piece of tissue out. So I kind of feel that my view is that Mammoprint need to do some work on that. I think they've got to be able to show that it works on core biopsies because the surgeon, when he takes a cancer out, can quite easily take a few core biopsies and put those into a fresh tissue bank. And that's an RNA solution. That's quite easy, but I think it's cumbersome. And for me, both good tests, but Oncotype wins just because of the fact is that you can do it once the tumour's out on paraffin embedded tissue and you can't with the mammoprint and despite the fact that mammoprint's FDA approved I don't see it winning at the end of the day. Last thing I want to ask you about is the issue of post-mastectomy radiation therapy and PETA mm-hmm. presented San Antonio for the first time really a benefit in the one to three positive nodes. What was your take on that? I thought it was quite interesting. I'm not convinced it's definitive and it would make me want to give everybody with one to three positive nodes post-mastectomy radiotherapy. I think the big problem about the old studies, it was often large cancers, multiple involved nodes. Even the nodes were large. And modern day breast cancers changed. We have much better systemic therapy than we ever had in those days. So I think there is very much still an open issue about do you need radiotherapy in patients with one to three positive nodes? And the good news is that we have a large international study called Supremo that we're running from Edinburgh where patients with one to three positive nodes have been randomized either to have radiotherapy or no radiotherapy. So hopefully that study will answer this issue because there is a divergence of opinion. Some people give radiotherapy to one to three positive nodes. A lot of people don't. And you see that across the UK as well. You know, post-mastectomy radiotherapy is a really big unresolved issue. The surgeons don't like it because it restricts your ability to reconstruct the breast. It interferes with your breast reconstruction. So you'll want to know almost ahead of time, you know, when you do the mastectomy, you know, are you going to have to give post-mastectomy radiotherapy? Because that will influence whether you reconstruct the breast at that time. So big issue for surgeons and hopefully, within a few years anyway, we'll have the answer. In the meantime, you know, you pays your money and takes your choice, really. Um, I've heard a lot of people say that they kind of look at the size of the tumor. They look at whether it's one versus two versus three. Is that the way you can kind of a relative risk Yeah, concept? I mean, exactly. I mean, we rarely use one factor alone to decide whether we're going to get post-mastectomy radiotherapy. We use tumor grade, lymphovascular invasion, tumor size, so we factor those in, and if you've got one, three positive nodes in a larger tumour, or you've got a lot of lymphatic vascular invasion, or it's a grade three tumour, then, yeah, in that patient, we'd probably consider giving them post-mastectomy radiotherapy, but just a one, three positive nodes alone, probably not.